back to the Curious Catholic Podcast Lenten series uh, focused on Dante's Divine Comedy. And we're here in our last installment focused on his great purgatorio. So we're, we're making our ascent. It's getting easier and easier and lighter and lighter and we're more and more desirous of, of getting to its, its, its uh, apex uh, on our way to paradise. But today we will uh, hear some... Some words from Virgil on the nature of love. We will um, hear his final words to Dante. We will uh, get the uh, just amazing first encounter uh, between the poet uh, and the pilgrim, really, and, uh, and Beatrice. So, uh, again, my name is Matt Cheminsky, joined uh, yet again by Paul Camacho in this series. And, uh, Paul, I was interested at the beginning because... Clearly, you get energized by the Purgatorio. I'm just wondering what, what gets your juices flowing uh, with this one in particular. <laughs> yep, Matt, it's good to be with you again. I think this is our sixth our sixth recording um, of the Divine Comedy, and or on the Divine Comedy. And you're right, the Purgatorio. I think is by by students who are maybe forced to read something of Dante in there college years or I've had a few students who come into my freshman year class and they've read some of the divine comedy as high school students. And they've almost always read something of the Inferno and maybe a little bit of the Purgatorio and never anything of the Paradiso. And it's really, it's such a shame because the, the divine comedy is a story that as we've talked about before, when we were talking about the Inferno, if you only read the Inferno, you'd think, Dante's just, you know, he's all about damnation, about these kind of lurid and livid descriptions of hell. But the poem is meant to be a triumphant story of a soul that is, that faces his sin. And then through grace, through help, through his own struggle, become, faces himself and becomes redeemed and purified and then sees something of the um, a kind of a foretaste of the eternal happiness that we're all destined for. So I love the Purgatorio first because we get out of hell and we see we see some of the beauty that Dante can show us as an artist and as a poet. I love it also for something we're going to talk about today, and that is the po- the Purgatorio comes right in the middle of the poem. It's the hinge, so to speak, between hell and heaven. It's the place of development. It's a threshold place. I I love threshold places as a philosopher and as a thinker, because they're places where if we pay attention to them, where there's there's changes that are happening, and therefore um, we can notice what's passed away and what's coming, and they're kind of contained together in one place. And purgatory is just such a place. It's a place of change, of growth, and of development, and therefore it's a place of hope. And the thing that I love about reading the if actually, if a student were to come to me or one of our listeners were to ask, I, I just starting with Dante, I, I only have time to read one thing. What should I read? I would say, read the Purgatorio, skip hell, um, <laughs> and get the foretaste of heaven in Purgatorio. But pur- Purgatory is where we very much in the spirit of our Lenten journey, where we see Dante's invitation to our soul's own transformation. And that's a, I find that incredibly moving. It's a place of incredible dynamism. Um, heaven is a, is beautiful in a way that, um, frankly, it's audacious to write something about heaven, as we'll see. And um, it, it's hard to imagine exactly what heaven 
will be like. Dante gives us the best, maybe one of the best um, accounts that any imaginative poet can give us. But but Purgatory is a place that seems both it seems familiar because um, we, we we kind of live it in this life, and it also gives us a a template for how we might transform ourselves in this life. So that's a long that's a long answer to a short question. I I could go on too, but I really do love the Purgatorio, and um, as we'll see today, um, it contains as coming in the heart of the comedy, coming between the the two. Um, other poems, it also contains what I think is the heart of Dante's message about love. Um, and it also uh, has all of the drama of encounters and farewells. So there's just so much packed into it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I like what you were just saying about the Purgatorio being sort of this threshold liminal place where there's dynamism and hope and transformation and change. And there's so many different ways that could be taken. I was interested, you mentioned uh, your work as a thinker and, and just reading the contos for today, it was interesting to see how uh, there's this transition from Virgil to Beatrice or almost like reason to faith. Um, but there's this dynamic, even relationship between the two of them. And we'll get to this, but I was interested ha- at how Beatrice seeks out Virgil. You know, she seems to identify him as, you know, there's something very particular to Dante here, right? Dante, the person, uh, you know, Virgil's going to speak to him very directly and very profoundly. But I think there's also something there about that faith and reason interaction and, you know, these themes of of crossing over. That's right. There's a there's a long tradition in the among the commentaries of identifying Virgil with reason and of identifying Beatrice with faith. And Dante needs both faith and reason um, sort of, let's say, Dante needs first faith reason and then faith in order to um, overcome his sin and, and, and make it to heaven. Virgil at many points says, you know, I'm not going to be able to lead you all the way. Um, you're going to have to find another guide or another guide will find you and she'll come. She's the one who bid me to come. Right. So both of these have to work together. But as you say, there's, we don't want to allegorize it too much. There is really this personal dimension. It's not just reason and faith. It's also Virgil, who taught Dante how to be a poet. It's also Virgil, who is, in Dante's estimation, sort of the height of pagan wisdom and arts, right? Um, Virgil as a philosophical poet, let's say. And Beatrice, of course, is not just faith, but is the, as she'll say when she shows up, the beauty of her physical body led Dante to a new life. But also Dante abandoned or failed to follow through in that new life in loving her. And in her ascent into heaven after her death, she says to him, you know, at that point, my body and my soul, I became more beautiful and I should have continued to lead you. But you forsook me then, right? So there's this personal dimension there. And I think the love relationship also shows that Dante's relationship to Dante's relationship to Virgil as a poet, as the author, he said, and the father of his art, right, was an intellectual relationship. He taught him how to write poetry. Dante's relationship to Beatrice was a relationship of fidelity at its best, and therefore it was a personal instantiation of faith, we could say. As we've said many times before, um, Dante's daring innovation in the poem is to elevate romantic love poetry into 
Christological um, poetry. So, so Beatrice's faith, and but in a per, a very personal and and um, romantic register, we could say. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I'm even thinking of this personal element, uh, the dynamism of personal influence. You think of uh, Cardinal Newman's great essay to that effect, and when you just speak, and it was kind of driving the point further home for me, uh, just about the nature of the Divine Comedy and the journey that Dante is on with his two guides really does say something to me about, I don't know if you want to call it discipleship or evangelization, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, the, this walking with others, the path of faith, truly doing so. Um, it's like we have enough study guides and study programs in the church. We have enough, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we publish more books than we have any need of in, in, <laughs> in, in sort of those veins. Um, but to Newman's point, it's, it's that truly personal influence that is going to move the hearts of others. And so these sort of large-scale programmatic endeavors, you know, as well-meaning as they are, social media account, you know, all that, whatever. It's great, great you know, good motives behind it all. But I think really it's interesting. The Divine Comedy it seems to be suggesting is, is that, you know, looking this other person in the eyes, walking with them truly. Um, yeah, so... Well, yeah, that, that's, that's right. And yeah. no, I think that's right. And notice that Dante's art is very, very personal. Um, but I think that all great stories are driven by all great stories are driven by characters and their relationship to one another. And I think, honestly, I think Dante is saying, as we've seen already, that art, as it functions in purgatory, it, it helps to educate us. It's relationships that establish trust and faithfulness and integrity to one another that can become transformative in our lives. But art, especially narrative art like the Divine Comedy, um, it can it gives us that personal dimension, right? I think we've we need more great Catholic artists of the imagination. For for me, literature, I'm thinking of the stories of Flannery O'Connor, I'm thinking of Dostoevsky, I'm thinking of other great Catholic authors, um, Graham Greene, for example, who whose stories have convicted me more more than right reading a you know a, a well meaning but sort of wrote um, pamphlet you can find in the lobby of a church or something. And that's a good segue to consider then um, Virgil's discourse on love. We're in Purgatorio seventeen. Um, you know, we're in the transition between the between uh, the purgation of the sins of wrath and, and sloth or sloth. I don't know. Are you a sloth or a sloth? Partisan? I say sloth. <laughs> okay, me too. Good. We're, we're in good company then. Uh-huh. <laughs> Even if we're wrong. Even if we're wrong. Yes. Okay. Um, so it's interesting. You know, with 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 the wrathful, there's this fog. There's this haze. You can't see uh, as anger, uh, anger, especially that once that, that pushes us towards injuring or attempting at least to injure others. Uh, but that's going to, it's going to give way, you know, and one of my favorite themes from the Purgatorio and then the Paradiso, um, you know, it, it, as we transition from, from wrath to sloth, you, Dante seems to suggest that you, he sees the sun sort of through a hazy cloud cover. But I love this theme that he introduces, here uh, or mentions here at least that there's this excess 
and he's mm-hmm. incapable of truly welcoming in the fullness of the sun. We'll have to return to that because mm-hmm. that's like, I mean, that's like top three for me of Dantean themes, uh, mm-hmm. this idea that we get expanded. Uh, but there's, it's excessive, right? The glory that's of right. God, the glory of creation is excessive. Um, but then we, we, we get into, uh, you know, Virgil discoursing on love, which I know you yourself love. So why do you, why Paul, do you love this discourse on love? I do love this discourse. I, I teach a course at Villanova on the, on, on the philosophy of love. Um, I've been thinking a lot about this, um, canto for a long time and the philosophical sources that Dante, the poet is drawing on and putting this in the mouth of Virgil. So Matt, you'll have to kind of, you have to hold me back a little bit because I could talk about this for a very long time. <laughs> Uh, but um briefly uh the before before we talk about Virgil's discourse here Dante the poet does something really really interesting canto 17 is right in the middle of the purgatorio it's the middle canto of the purgatorio and the purgatorio is in the middle of the divine comedy and therefore Virgil gets this discourse it, it lasts for the course of essentially two cantos where it's just Virgil talking to Dante about the nature of love and this is really important. I mean, Dante, the poet, puts this discourse right at the heart of the divine, literally at the heart of the divine comedy. It's right in the center. And something that you just said reminded me, you know, we the terraces, we, we talked um, last time about the terrace of pride. Next comes the terrace of envy and then the terrace of wrath. Um, now we're, we're, we kind of pause on the terrace of sloth um, where everyone feels tired and we're kind of sitting around and they're having, they're having a chat. But as you said, the way that Dante sets up the the imagery here, you come out of this the cloud of smoke that constituted the um, the contrapasso suffering in on wrath. There's a kind of twilight um, glimmering of the sun, and then an excess of light from the angel that you can't look at because he hides. And so, what you have is a transition from darkness that he describes as darker than hell, and Dante should know since he's literally been to hell in the Inferno. Then, a, then a kind of twilight chiaroscuro of um, light and darkness and then bright excess that's heavenly. So you have right at the heart of the comedy an image of the whole divine comedy, darkness of hell, twilight of purgatory, excess of divine light in heaven that sets up then this um, discourse. So Dante is doing all of these things artistic and um, in terms of just laying out the verses and the, the the counting, the arithmetic, the geometry of the verses themselves to indicate this is literally central, what he's about to say with Virgil. So so he wants us to pay attention. In other words, he's putting all of his artistry behind it, right? Um, and what, what, what Virgil does is he begins his discourse. This is at line 91. Uh, on Canto um, 17, and he says this, Neither creator nor his creature, my dear son, was ever without love, whether natural or of the mind, he began, and this you know. So this is the beginning of unfolding what we could call um, an, a metaphysics of desire, of love, and also he's going to focus on creatures, on human beings, so it's going to be an anthropology, an account of human beings, um, but it begins by saying what links God to all of his creatures is a sh- is the fact that both of them, all of us, are loving. And so um, then he's going to go on to say, look, there are two kinds of love that exist in a human being. 
there's natural love, and this is what we share with the rest of the cosmos. And this is the kind of love that directs us to our end. The example he gives is the way a fire wants to move upwards, right? A fire just tends to move upwards. In the same way, all beings that exist have a desire that moves us to our proper ends. And in human beings, we call this desire love. And what end is it that human beings want? Well, he draws on the great pagan philosophical tradition in Aristotle and in Plato, as Virgil says earlier, right? And says, um, what do we want as human beings? Well, we all want to be happy. We disagree about what counts as happiness, but this is what's built into us. This is our natural love insofar as we are creaturely beings. We want to be happy and nothing that we choose, we ever choose with the aim of making ourselves unhappy. Even when we sometimes choose pain, we do it because we think we're going to get something out of it, right? And so he says, the natural love we don't choose for ourselves, but the mental love, that's the part in us that he'll he'll say later, Beatrice will tell you, this is called free will. So remember this, Virgil says, because we're going to talk about, you're, you you're going to talk about this. In fact, it turned out that a lot of the Paradiso is a kind of theology lesson from Beatrice on the nature of free will. And now, now to a philosopher like myself, this does in fact sound like heaven to constantly be talking <laughs> about philosophical concepts. But first time readers of the Paradiso um, are a little bit shocked and maybe even disappointed that it consists right. in, <laughs> in this kind of thing. But um, So Virgil goes on, and this is really crucial. He says, look, um, the way that purgatory is structured is based around the ways that our love can go wrong. You'll, you'll remember, Matt, that when we pass through the gate of purgatory, um, the angel there um, um, reminded us and, Ver and Dante the poet himself said, no one can come through this gate unless they're willing to make the crooked ways straight. Well, now we get the clarification of that. And what Virgil says here is, look, love um, our overall love to be happy, that we don't get to choose, but we do get to choose the kinds of things and the ways in which we love. And this can go wrong, he says, in three ways. One way that our, our he calls us mental love because it involves our imagination and our own choice. Um, and he says, one way that love can go wrong is that um, you, you love something that is not a true good. You love something that's a false good. So he gives three examples of this. He says, um, you could um, hope to excel over your neighbor and therefore um, long that, you're, that um, your neighbor be brought low, he says, right? And you be elevated above the other. This, of course, is the sin of pride that we saw on the first terrace. And then he says, you might fear the loss of power or honor or fame and if you're bettered by another, and so you want to see that other person fall. And this is envy, the second terrace that we saw on Mount Purgatory. And then he says, there might be someone who thinks that he's offended and you want vengeance until you contrive harm of another person over another person. And that's wrath, right? So so the, the, the first three ways that love can go wrong are all united around this kind of counterfeit good that you might love. It's not really good for you to be elevated over the other or that the other one falls or that you get a harm of the other person. And yet you can imagine the ways in which a, a kind of twisted love would take these to be good for the self. So he says, this is love that um, loves the wrong object. And that's all the things that are punished on the first levels of purgatory. You with me so far, Matt? 
Oh, I'm right there with you. <laughs> okay. So, so Virgil says, those are the sins that are below us. But here they are on the terrace of, of sloth. And he says, look, sloth is also a, a kind of deformed love, but it's a different kind of thing. Sloth isn't loving the wrong things. Sloth is not loving enough. Sloth is a kind of um, slowness to a lack of zeal to chase after, to to find, to seek um, it's it's a willingness to put up with or to kind of be content with less than what you're made for. So sloth is a failure of love, not in terms of its object, like the lower levels, but in terms of its intensity. Um, sloth is um, the the both the Italian and the Latin is acedia, which is um, um, not laziness as as so much as it is as a kind of like lack of concern for your spiritual good. So sloth requires an intensification of love. So we have loving the wrong things, not loving enough. And then he says, um, what's going to come above us is going to be loving truly good things, um, loving um, uh, uh, material goods, loving things that um, provide sustenance and pleasure to our body, um, loving the good of sex, right? But loving them in excess, loving them too much, not finding them in a, in a proper place, but becoming addicted to real goods. And he says, this is the third way that love can go wrong, loving true goods, but goods that are finite as if they were infinite, right? As if they were the end and purpose of life. So it's, it's amazing what, what Virgil does here. He says, we're made to love. And when we sin, we, we often think that sin is like not is like not loving. But what he says is, no, actually, it's a confusion of our love. It's loving either the wrong things, not loving enough, or loving the right things, but in excess. And going forward, Virgil says, from now on, on the on the terrace of sloth and moving upwards into the terraces of avarice or greed, of gluttony, where we love um, physical delights too much, and of lust, where we love the good of sex, but in, in a disordered way, that um, these are loving the right things, but just with the wrong kind of intensity, not putting them in their place. So from here on out, our love is going to be a proper guide, but we need to kind of shape it and control it and direct it in the right in the right way. That's excellent. Yeah, that's uh, worth the price of admission. Um, <laughs> <laughs> both to listening, downloading this episode, and buying the Purgatorio. Absolutely. Um, and what I found really, I mean, there's so much that can be said, but one thing that I, I, I was really interested in this time around was, again, realizing that for Dante, right, that the excessive love is not mm-hmm. is better than the deficient uh, lack of love, the, the slothful, uh, you know, acedia of not being roused enough by the good of creation, which puts, I think, a lot of things on their head as far as the popular imagination uh, considers Christianity. Uh, right. So again, back to the last episode with the weight of glory uh, from Lewis, as you mentioned in that episode, is very Dantean essay, which again, this is further to that point, like Lewis again saying, you know, Christ won't necessarily indict us um, because we love too much, but because we love too little, we desired too little That's and right. desired wrongly. Um so that that was one one thing again amongst many things that I'd highlight. That's right. If if Dante is a representative of the Catholic tradition of the Catholic imagination, he represents this central thread that is just surprisingly and um, 
routinely mischaracterize, and that is we're not supposed to hate the world. <laughs> we're not supposed to hate the good things. In fact, if anything, we love too little, not too much. Um, it's it's the deficiency and the lack of our love that's a problem. Um, my other favorite author, as you know, um, Matt, is uh, Augustine, and Augustine says something very similar. There's one one place in one of his sermons where he has this theme. He says, look, the, the problem isn't that we're supposed to be curbing our love. It's rather that we it, imagine your love like a torrent or like a river that's just rushing and pouring out. You don't want to stop that up. You want to ch- direct it in the right way. Right? This is the motive force of what it means to be a human being. In fact, this is the very thing that links us to the divine. So, so the, the, to be sure, there are problems with loving the wrong thing or loving in the wrong way. And there's, there are dangers there that Dante doesn't just wave away. But at the same time, Dante says the solution to it, right, is like all the great saints are great lovers first. Um, they shock us in how, how joyful and loving they are, how much they love the worlds um, and and use that right to direct us to themselves and us to God. But that's Dante's way as well. It's what we said before. It's the way of affirmation. It's a the the deep affirmation of the goodness of the world that we see all the way back in Genesis one when God creates and says it's good. And Dante's claim here that he's putting before that he's submitting to us is that um, uh, we. We sin when we don't love enough, right? Um, and so the whole of the Divine Comedy then is an education of our desire. It, uh, it Back to what we were saying at the beginning of um, today's discussion, right? Dante is using all of these images. And he's, as we're going to see, he believes um, that Beatrice herself in her person and then the fictional appearance of Beatrice in the comedy is meant to direct us towards um, our happiness, right? And attentiveness to love and uh, a humanization and integration of that love is what leads to us to happiness. And just to underline one thing, and this will move us forward, I think, is that he, Virgil and Dante, um, Dante the poet and Virgil says here, right, that actually freedom doesn't consist in our ability to choose whatever it is that we want. Freedom consists in our ability to achieve the happiness for which we were born. And therefore, freedom is an arbitrary, is not arbitrary decision. Freedom is when our desires align with what will actually make us happy, right? And therefore, um, freedom is um, consonant with, and in fact, is ultimately can be identified with a fully unrestricted love that's oriented towards the right thing. Right. And that's going to be something that we see in Canto 27, where Virgil's really, in one way, handing Dante over to his own desire and his own pleasure, uh, which might be at first <laughs> first sound uh, scandalous to some, um, that Virgil's so overt, you know, in his uh, affirmation of Dante's desirous self. Uh, but it's interesting, you know, after we get this big, long discourse, uh, which is beautiful, uh, actually, it's not, that, it's not all that long, to be honest, um, and then, you know, that consideration of free will, we encounter the slothful who now in purgatory are 
hastening. Mm-hmm. It's like you, it's like you're walk, taking a walk through the neighborhood, and, and a group of runners come behind you without uh, unaware <laughs> on the left. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they kind of yeah, they pull you along with them, right? right. So that's what's happening here because they're making up for lost time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the slothful right now they're running. They're, they so they're uh, you know making up for time lost for lack of love. Right. Uh, and their zeal now they say is uh, there to make grace grow green again. <laughs> I like that image. It's um, an amazing, yeah, it's an amazing image, right? There, this the sort of sap and vitality of of the plant, right, is is here linked to the kind of zeal for the good that they're enacting in their lives. Um, man, there's going to be yeah. more and more verdancy as we go along, too. That's right. Things are getting greener um, now. There's the upsurge of life that um, happens, I think, in in love that we're going to see more and more. So well, we've come so far with with Virgil. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's going to be time to uh, say goodbye. Well, we don't even get to say goodbye, but we don't. And that's part of it. Yeah. Let, let, let's, let's, before we say goodbye to Virgil now, neither the reader nor Dante know this, but um, in, in Canto 27, um, we, we climb through the, up the rest of Mount Purgatory. We pass through this sort of final fire that stands between Dante and um, the, the, as as we've mentioned before, and, and and listeners can go back and and listen to the our episodes on the Inferno where we talked about um, the geography of the place. But it, this is a good time to remind us that um, Mount Purgatory sort of rose up as a result of Lucifer's fall. And one of the things that Dante imagines is that um, Eden, the Garden of Eden, when when Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden, Eden didn't just sort of disappear. The reason we weren't able to return to it, um, right, is because it <laughs> it went up on the top of Mount Purgatory. So it is the temporal and terrestrial paradise that's at the top of Mount Purgatory that now Dante and Virgil have arrived um, at before we take off for the heavenly paradise, and when at the end of Purgatorio 27, that's when we, f- we cross over from the suffering on Mount Purgatory into this Edenic paradise where everything will be green and verdant and where we'll encounter a number of different figures and where we'll meet Beatrice. But before we do, they pass through this final fire and Virgil turns and he gives what, what end up being his last words to Dante, the last words that he utters in the comedy, even though we don't know it in the in um yet in the poem and this is what virgil says i'll just i'll just read it and then you you tell me matt your your thoughts about this how you would connect it um to what we've just been talking about and then we'll go on to see beatrice so here's what virgil says that sweet fruit which mortals with great effort seek on so many different boughs shall today give peace to all your cravings and then Dante interrupts and says, such were Virgil's words to me, and never was there promise of a gift that might bring equal pleasure. Desire upon desire so seized me to ascend that with every step I felt that I was growing wings for flight. Right. So th- there's the image of the notion of desire, right? But no, think about what Virgil's saying here. He says, that secret thing you've longed for and looked for and everything that you've ever sought in your time on earth, today you'll have it. It's It's amazing it's startling you can you can barely give words to it um and then he says virgil fixed his eyes on me and said the temporal fire and the eternal you have seen my son 
and now come to a place in which, unaided, I can see no farther. I have brought you here with intellect and skill. From now on, take your pleasure as your guide. You are free of the steep way, free of the narrow. Look at the sun shining before you. Look at the fresh grasses, flowers, and trees which here the earth produces of itself. You may sit down or move among these until the fair eyes come, rejoicing, which weeping bid me come to you. No longer wait for word or sign from me. Your will is free, upright, and sound. Not to act as it chooses is unworthy. Over yourself, I crown and mitre you. I still get chills reading <laughs> reading this, uh, as, especially as a parent and as a teacher thinking about, you know, doing my utmost to, uh, to help my students to see something, to help my children become, and then you know, sending them out into the world, um, saying, I've done all that I can, <laughs> you know, now it's your turn. Um, uh, that's just one tiny aspect of this. This is Virgil, the kind of proud father <laughs> saying, right. you know, I give you to yourself now, Dante. Um, but what else you hear or see in that, Matt? Well, <laughs> one thing that um you know, aware of now is uh, Virgil, you don't really know what Beatrice has in store for this guy because it's not going to be all nice and cozy in the beginning there. <laughs> but we'll That's get right. to that. Um, we'll get to that. That's right. But I was reminded, you mentioned Augustine a little bit ago. I was reminded of his, you know, pithy line, love God and do what you will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, if you truly are loving God, uh, then you can act as, you know, he's Virgil is instructing Dante to here according to your to your pleasure and your desire, because it's rightly ordered, it's proportional. Um, and I even, I even feel a little, uh, I don't know, off saying proportional and ordered, right? For this love that is so, it's so full of life and it, it's so invigorating, it's so completing and expansion, uh, expansive of our person. Um, so again, that, that, that theme that I keep mentioning is one that I just really... Um, gravitate towards in, in Dante, this idea that, you know, we're, we're not trying to suppress or negate desire. We're trying to guide it and almost inflame it really. Right. Absolutely. Inflame um, it. Yeah. Inflame it and guide it. That's exactly right. And you think of the mystics experiences of God and prayer, you know, of course they have their periods of dryness, but they, like they, they can't actually describe the encounter with God uh, that is more direct than most of us encounter in this life. And then, you know, maybe the last, well, two things, right? The verdancy comes back, right? You can, you can sort of peruse, you, you can wander through the garden as God did with, with our first parents in uh, Eden, in their Edenic innocence. But then I love this, this line at the end, I crown and mitre you. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I didn't look at the commentary on this. I'm, I'm flying blind on this aside from my own, <laughs> my own eyes, which is pretty blind, but um <laughs> couple cantos earlier he's talking about church and state and stuff like that and um but this idea of crown and mitre just seems i could be totally off i should glance at this real quick the notes but right you're you're you are your own sovereign now you are your own god you are your own ruler uh Mm -hmm. all these externalized guides and authorities you know they're not that they're not necessary here for you and i but for dante now they're no longer necessary right right we Um, who needs to look at the who needs to look at the notes? The Chaminsky commentary here, I think, is really great. 
I think that's exactly right. Virgil says, over yourself, I crown and mitre you. Now, of course, Virgil can't make Dante the emperor, the, the crown. He can't make him a bishop or a pope, the the mitre, right? But what he's saying is these temporal authorities you no longer stand in need of because the whole purpose of their existence, which is to help guide you on and Dante's vision of the way the church and the state work together in temporal and spiritual matters, you, you, you've got it now, man. You know, like this is what it was all for. And to your point about the intensification too, it, it's, it's striking. He says, take your pleasure as your guide. He, he, he says, I was your guide. You also on on Earth you had you had the bishops you had the church you had the Pope and you had the Emperor right but now what do you take to be your guide whatever it is that brings you joy go do that I'm thinking in Lent I don't know about your experience Matt but you know when I'm suspicious and nervous about the things that I naturally take pleasure in I I you know I I worry about them um, uh, imagine the kind of freedom that comes from being able to simply trust in our pleasures as reliable guides to what is good, right? That's what Dante is inviting us to imagine. And, and just, to find, just to underscore this again, he says, desire upon desire sees me to ascend. I felt like I was growing wings for flight. It, at, in a, just a few short contos, he literally will ascend in flight and the whole of Paradiso will be flight through the heavens. What is it powered by? The the intensified and purified and refined, but in always increasing um, desire of love, right? Where the mental mm-hmm. and the natural, to use Virgil's language from his discourse, have been united and kind of supercharged, we could say, right? <laughs> I like that phrase, yeah. yeah. And the more we talk about Dante, the, actually, the more I now I want to re- revisit C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, right. So we have <laughs> yeah. comes to mind, uh-huh. you know, um, with Eros, uh, you know, Psyche and Cupid. That's right. Um, we so. we could say the Great Divorce also is um, um, mm-hmm. Lewis's take on on the Divine Comedy, his own kind of imagination for it. Even the Screw Tape Letters are the same thing um, uh, from seen from the kind of hellish. Um, a good a good paired reading uh, with the Divine Comedy would be to read the. Um, would be to read the screw tape letters with the inferno and to read the great divorce with um, Purgatorio and with uh, um, Paradiso. Throw in the weight of glory as we've already mentioned, and uh, also till we have faces. And <laughs> you'd have a, you're convincing me to put together a course that would do Lewis and Dante over the course of a year. Uh, that would be really wonderful. There you go. Just put me in the footnotes uh-huh. of the syllabi. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> great. All right. So. Virgil has given us what he can give us. And mm-hmm. um, he mentions the eyes, you know, that were weeping when they came to him pleading for his aid and guiding Dante, but will rejoice when they see Dante. So whose eyes are we speaking of? And what is the manner of her appearance? Right. The, the only eyes that, um, that mean anything to Dante really, which are, <laughs> which are the eyes of his beloved. Um, w- we're going to jump ahead to Canto Thirty now. Um, Dante has some some adventures in in Eden. Um, he 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 meets a woman named Matilda, um, who is kind of a guide for him in Eden. But but as Virgil kind of walks along quietly, 
And um, a number of things happened, but the the biggest is we we kind of arrive at this place, a kind of clearing in the in the garden, and. Dante is on one side of the river Letha, which um, is the river that you drink from and you forget. Dante is going to transform the pagan understanding of Letha. In, in Letha, you drink in, in in Hades, you drink from the river Letha and you you forget your previous life so that your soul can be reincarnated. Of course, um, as a as a Christian, Dante doesn't uh, believe in reincarnation, but he thinks that Letha is a kind of washing away or a forgetting of one's sins of one's past sins so that you enter into heaven per totally with the sins sort of done you've you've purged them you face them they're not just forgotten or overlooked but they are forgotten in the sense that they no longer have their pull or even historical sort of force on your life anymore we could say but dante's on this side of the river he hasn't crossed it yet and on the other side he's treated to you essentially a, a long kind of like living play or pageant um that it, it's very interesting um it involves um a number of allegorical references to the old testament um it it but the the two standout features of it is there's a griffin right which fans of harry potter or students of mythology will know right is um a hybrid of a of a of an eagle and a lion right in one two natures and one being Right, and the griffin is pulling an ark, um, which represents the church. And um, in the midst of this, uh, there's many other figures in the pageant that represent, like as I say, the patriarchs, the the gospels. Um, there's a whole there's a whole um, book of Revelation thing going on. <laughs> and in the midst of all of this, right, um, these angels and um, come down holding um, a a um, a chair upon which is seated. Uh, Beatrice. And we come to understand that this was not just a pageant of the church in its in salvation history, but also it was a wedding. It was a wedding procession. Um, and all of the language and the appearance of, of Beatrice, right? Um, flowers are coming down. People are chanting, Benedictus qui venis, blessed is he who comes. Um, they're, they're throwing up flowers. There are references to um, Virgil's Aeneid in, in the language that's being used. Um, everyone is singing joyous alleluias. And then Dante says this, at break of day, I have seen the sky. It's eastern parts all rosy and the rest serene and clear, even as the sun's face rose, obscured so that through tempering mist the eye could bear it longer. Thus within that cloud of blossoms, rising from angelic hands and fluttering back down into the chariot and around it, olive crowned above a veil of white appeared to me a lady beneath a green mantle dressed in the color of living flame. And in my spirit, which for so long a time had not been overcome with awe that used to make me tremble in her presence, even though I could not see her with my eyes, through the hidden force that came from her, I felt the overwhelming power of that ancient love. Right? So we have Dante the Pilgrim, who's, who's beloved. He's been seeking this whole time. And we, as the readers, have been sort of heightening our expectations. And he draws it out. And then he says, I couldn't see her completely, but I felt it in, in me, the overwhelming power of that ancient love. Which we should say is a reference, again, to something um, in Virgil's Aeneid. 
So we're we're primed and we're prepped, right, for the appearance of Beatrice. She's appearing as beautiful as a bride, right? And he says, it pierced me, this majestic force. And what is it that Dante wants to do at this moment? What's his first inclination? Um, to turn to Virgil and say, here she is. This is her. And he, he does this amazing thing. He says, I turned to my left with the confidence a child has running to his mama when he is afraid or in distress, right? He turns to Vir Virgil has been a guide, a father, an author, a protector, right? And now Virgil appears as a, as a mama, right? I want to, he's a child turning to his mother and saying, mama here, she's, she's here, right? And he says, I turn to say to Virgil, not a single drop of blood remains in me that does not tremble. I know the signs of the ancient flame. Now, that last line, I know the signs of the ancient flame, that's Dante's translation of a line from Virgil's Aeneid. So this last thing that he turns to say to Virgil is actually giving back to Virgil the language that Virgil gave to him, except filtered through Dante's own translation in Italian. So he turns to tell Virgil, I, f I feel it. And then we have these devastating lines. But Virgil had departed, leaving us bereft. Virgil, sweetest of fathers. Virgil, to whom I gave myself for my salvation, and not all our ancient mother lost, could save my cheeks washed in the dew from being stained again with tears. It's amazing. Six lines, and he he the, the pathos of it is incredible. Three times he repeats Virgil's name. Um, in in having lost him, um, he reminds us that he had given himself and trusted himself to Virgil, and Virgil had been the agent of his salvation here. Right, had come to him and shepherded him through hell and up purgatory, saved him from the beasts, saved him from certain damnation. And he goes even further. Here they are standing in Eden, and he says, "Our ancient mother lost everything for us." His ancient, the ancient mother being Eve, right? And yet. And all of that has been regained for me. And yet still I weep. I weep on these tears that Virgil had washed with his own hands in the dew that was spread in the very beginning of purgatory, right? And they're stained again now with tears because Virgil has disappeared in the moment when Dante turns to him. And why has Virgil disappeared? Because the new guide has appeared, right? And just like that, one has arrived and the other has departed. Right. <laughs> and it, it, it is a moving scene. His absence speaks, uh, speaks volumes. Um, and then it's, it's really overwhelming the next two cantos about his first encounters or his first encounter with Beatrice, this side of, of death. Um, you know, I was thinking throughout and there's mention, uh, whether it's in 30 or 31 about the, the, the ability for beauty to pierce us. And to cause us pain and longing, which I know is a long-standing theme uh, in the tradition, but I don't, I don't know how cognizant we are of that in the modern world. Uh, mm. Beauty almost seems like this um, this nicety or this mm. um, unnecessary but quaint thing to sprinkle on top of things to make them more enjoyable. Mm. But beauty here really stands out, and there's so many different angles we could approach these two contests from, but beauty really stands out to me as being fearsome to be as terrible mm -hmm. in, in not, not in the negative evaluative sense, but you know, 
shocking, awe-inspiring, intimidating, um, sub, you know, the real sense of su- sublimity mm-hmm. uh, as being, again, back to Lewis and, and to We Have Faces, that one of those last scenes um, where the God descends mm-hmm. and um, the main character um, has nothing to say, but Lewis does such a great job of describing the scene as just being, it's like the whole, there's a tremor, almost like a metaphysical tremor running throughout all of, uh, of, of, of the, um, of the environment. Um, and so you get some of that here with Beatrice. And so there's so many ways we could approach it, but what, what stands out to you maybe is the thing that grabbed you this time around most. Yeah. I, I think you're right that, Beatrice, it has to be said, loves Dante and wills his salvation. And yet when she appears, she appears as a terrible beauty. (laughs) I think you put it really well. And I'm reminded of another Lewis um, um, quote and idea that is in the Chronicles of Narnia that Aslan is he's he's not safe, but he's good. right? Right. And um. Beatrice also appears, she appears in two ways that are shocking to first time readers. The first is that she appears as a woman who has been scorned, uh, a lover who has been scorned. And the second is that she appears with a kind of awful and terrible, I mean, literally awful, full of inspiring awe and Dante, a kind of terrible, it's the sharp edge of love right and what what she has to say to dante is um don't weep because you lost virgil right weep because you've come you've gotten yourself into this place where you had to literally go through hell and up mount purgatory in order to be saved and her main complaint against dante seems to be i god sent me into your life to become an agent of your new life right? I was the outline of Christ for you. And as soon as I, and and inspired a new life in you, but as soon as I was no longer in your sight, the moment I was, wasn't right in front of you, you abandoned me for other loves. Yeah. You were unfaithful to the new life that was promised in you. And, and she also is really concerned that Dante is able to name for himself this kind of final this betrayal of her, which was, which is ultimately a betrayal of Christ. And, um, before, before she gives him the kind of, um, the joy of a kind of, um, of a reuniting embrace, right. The effect on Dante is, it's devastating. I mean, he's, he's, he's weeping. He, he's, he, he has these great images. He's frozen inside, and then it all comes pouring and gushing out. And he's barely able to kind of confess. Beatrice is so stern that the angels are saying, "Like, lady, have mercy on him. <laughs> you know, have mercy." And she says, "You have no idea. I gave him all of these things, and he failed in all of these ways. And I'm saying this for his benefit." Um, it is a stern. It's a very stern love. Um, we have to remember that Dante, the poet, has this opportunity to write this encounter, right, between him and his beloved into his poetry. And we, we talked before about Dante's awareness of his own pride. I mean, he writes, he does not come off looking good in these contests. 
And I think this is part of his gesture of humility and of repentance before his beloved. Um, he failed to live up to the life that she promised him. And here he chooses to make amends for it, I think, in a in writing himself um, and her into this in a, in a way that um, upends our expectations of the way in which grace appears. I, I mean, you talked about terrible beauty. I also, I've been reading Flannery O'Connor again with my students. And one of the things I love about Flannery O'Connor um, is the way in which she reminds us that we like to think of grace as something that comforts us. And, and indeed it does, but there's a danger in, in, in thinking that God's grace only is is meant to comfort us um, because if we are comfortable with what we take to be the good, then there's no possibility of growth beyond our settled egoism. Uh, we, we tend to make God into our own image. And so in Flannery O'Connor's short stories, grace always appears as a kind of violence, a kind of rending that grants light the light to us that we need but we wouldn't choose on our own <laughs> and um i think that beatrice shows up in the first place in in that way for dante right and it's effective he is in 31 he makes good on the three steps that we encountered uh at the gate of purgatory with his heartfelt uh true confession of his waywardness he's contrite and then there is this moment of reconciliation, right? And so mm-hmm. I, I did love the, the, the baptism imagery. Um, and you really get a sense of being plunged into the waters with Dante, mm-hmm. <laughs> which again, it seems forceful, but it seems like there's something about the, the vigor of it that mm-hmm. speaks to the life-givingness of it. So it's a vitality and vigor uh, woven together Um and really, you do feel like now we're ready. Now the you know we're ready for the, the, the fullness, um, which again isn't going to be. It's not like heaven is like once and for all and done for. It's not static either, in a way, right? There's going to be this. If God is truly limitless and eternal, there's no way we're ever going to be static. So, um, at the end of. of you know, the Purgatorio, is there anything, you know, that you're most looking forward to uh, in paradise? Yeah, I mean, um, two things. One, just to underscore, go all the way back to the beginning. You know, Ver- uh, Beatrice has this really great line um, that she says to Dante. She says, um, look, you, you, because you've condemned your own sin, God knew your sin, but because you condemned it, the the sharp edge of the sword of justice is is dulled by the grindstone of mercy, she says. And then she has this great line. She says, here's why I said this to you, so that you bear the shame of your, of your straying from me, so that next time, when you go back to earth, when you hear the siren's calls, she says, you'll be stronger. It's the same thing Dante's doing with the purgatorio itself, is to help us now right in our imagining of the future not to put it off but to think of it now but um uh, and as you say he's sort of forced into this baptism that he of course chooses to but it's 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 forceful it's it, when i say violent i don't mean it's against his will it, violent in the sense that it it requires external 
forced to help him get to this place and he drinks in some of the water and he's ready to go right and he comes out and and this is what i what i love about the end he comes to the other side and then beatrice um she takes she removes her veil and now dante is granted her not just her eyes but also her smile right and here we have the smile again in purgatorio that smile and those eyes are so powerful for dante that they were the vehicles of his desire and his new life. But now something's changed in them. They're increasingly beautiful. Why? Because he looks at Beatrice and Beatrice is looking at the griffin. And the griffin is two natures in one person. The griffin is Christ. Beatrice is looking at Christ and Dante is seeing reflected in Beatrice's eyes, the person of Christ. So she becomes the mediating beauty that reveals to him the person of Christ that he can't look at directly yet. And what's going to happen now, what I'm most looking forward to is sometimes Dante scholars have said the purgatory is about um, perfecting, straightening, and um, uh, and sort of energizing Dante's will in his love. The Paradiso is about perfecting and intensifying Dante's sight which metaphorically in the poem is about correcting and forming his intellect to grasp something of what it is to be in God's presence. Um, and now that our loves have been rightly directed, the, the, the paradise is all about starting to witness what it is to actually be in God's presence. And that's, um, um, you know, um, the drama, look, we've got an entire another canticle, right, to go. And the, the drama of hell, right, is, oh, I don't want to end up here. The drama of purgatory is the drama of transformation. What's the drama of heaven going to be? Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll see, but the drama, I think, is the transformation of our own imagination of what it means to be in God's presence. And uh, that's a really exciting um, and dramatic thing as well. It really is. And I'm I think I'm most looking forward to talking about the resurrection of the body and spinning orbs of light uh, at one level. <laughs> yeah. So, but I won't say any more about that. I'll leave that to that episode. So, thanks for joining us for our time in the uh, in Purgatory with Dante. Uh, look forward to uh, Paul and I uh, continuing uh, the journey uh, onward and upward uh, with Dante and Beatrice in Paradise, uh, which will come fittingly. Uh, with the Easter season. So happy Easter. Thanks for joining us. 